I adore the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. One of the architects of R&B and soul music, a genius musician, incredible vocalist, songwriter, and pioneering artist. You can't even talk about R&B music without mentioning her impact and influence. She has sold millions of albums with endless hit singles and is hailed as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, vocalists of all time. And on a personal note, I can barely articulate it, but her music, her voice just touches my soul on the deepest possible level. Something magical happened in 1998. Aretha Franklin teamed up with Lauryn Hill for the song A Rose Is Still A Rose, a surprise hit that landed Aretha at number 26 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number five on the R&B hip hop charts. I guess it was a surprise because Aretha was 40 plus years into her career. Most veteran artists at this point weren't making chart-topping singles, and R&B was in such a different place. The genre had been through endless shifts and sonic transformations, and hip-hop started to permeate nearly every facet of popular music. By teaming up with Lauryn Hill, a rising superstar who was currently at the center of hip-hop and R&B as a force to be reckoned with, Aretha was able to touch the hearts of a new generation. In this song, Aretha plays the maternal figure, guiding a young woman through heartbreak, suffering relationships and encounters where men are careless and reckless with her. Men who use and abuse and cast aside. Aretha comforts the young woman through the song, reminding her of her beauty, her power, her endurance. It's also a powerful rejection of slut shaming. The message being, you are still a rose, you are still a flower, you are not tainted. A strong, affirming anthem and spiritual balm for women everywhere who have been broken down. The song is also about the reclaiming of internal strength, self-love, self-forgiveness. I love Lauren Hill's cameo in the song as the reassuring inner voice sampling Evie Brickell's What I Am. The video is also a favorite of mine. Aretha is a royal mother in a garden, singing with such soothing spiritual grace. Actress Elise Neal plays the troubled young woman. Q-Tip makes an appearance as a careless lover. The video also features Lauren Hill, Faith Evans, Changing Faces, and Amel LaRue. Somehow seeing these young R&B women sing and clap around Queen Aretha at her piano warms my heart. This beautiful honoring of lineage and legacy is deeply moving. Like the song itself, it's a reminder of the collective affirming strength of Black womanhood through the enormous soul-saving power of music. Remember I told y'all how much I love the Can't Hardly Wait soundtrack? For the 1998 teen comedy about coming of age during a high school graduation after party, the multi-character arc narrative had an accompanying playlist that was gloriously rap, rock, pop, and a little dash of R&B. My favorite dash being Missy Elliott's remix for Hit Him With The He, featuring Lil' Kim with predictably fire bars and Missy demonstrating once again how solid of a singer she is as much as she's a rapper. During the song's break with a throw your wig Timberland beat along with a sample borrowed from Bjork's song Yoga with a J, Missy creates an inferno of infectious energy with rhymes, again asserting her autonomy and self-empowerment, plucking flashy phonies from her soil bed as the song's theme suggests. But another artist came to slay on this track and that was Mocha, a New York native and Missy's protege that was signed to her imprint, The Gold Mine Inc. in 1997 and made a cluster of rounds on tracks during the late 1990s and early 2000s. Missy took her collaborative repertoire further with another newcomer and gold mine label mate named Nicole Ray with her first single, Make It Hot, that skyrocketed to number five on Billboard's Hot 100 in 1998. 
The video, like many in the Missy Elliott vortex, was wildly surreal and saw the consistent to date appearances and shout outs to Timbaland, Magoo, Aaliyah, Genuine, and Playa, whom one third of was Static Major, a truly phenomenal songwriter that spent a lot of time crafting Aaliyah's third album that came later. Remember, this was the era where the music video set a strong tone for an artist's POV and the joyous display of their creative collaborators. And I have to mention who was also included in this pot was Tweet, before we knew her as Tweet when she was with the singing trio, Suga. With Missy's songwriting and Timbaland's Out of This World production, this distinct group of artists became their own set, a post-Devante swing of Jodeci fame and Svengali of the swing mob or the basement crew that we now know as the Super Friends. The Super Friends Collective wrote songs, produced beats, and appeared as features on various tracks together and amongst each other, breaking away from Devante's brand of a production house to envision and execute a more relaxed and diplomatic space for artistic prosperity. In all of their quirky, pure display of solidarity with the video for the track Up Jumps the Boogie from the duo project by Timbaland and Magoo titled Welcome to Our World that premiered the previous year, Aaliyah introduces the comrades with the memorable yet simplistic phrase, we gon' show you how we party. That one line had an embracing quality, inviting us as onlookers to watch, learn, and then join in on the festivities. The invitation was also a grand opening celebration where we see Magoo break out his rhymes, Timbaland front and center, which was different from his sonic phone line background ad-libs on his produced tracks for others. And how could you not have a Missy verse where she's letting the world know, again, that she's going to be explicit and sexual and fully who she is and you're going to bop to it. The Super Friends relayed confidence with warmth and swag. And I can't help but think that that had a lot to do with the large portion of their origin story, which began in Virginia. Missy, Timbaland, and Magoo, with Pharrell Williams in the mix for a while as well, were just teenagers driven by their own brand of creativity and ambition, who saw the benefit of working with each other and not in opposition nor competition. They brought their hard work ethic and humble nature right on into the big leagues of the business. As mentioned before, their sound, flow, and refusal to play it safe created the audaciousness of R&B that we now have in 2023. They never lost sight of who they were or where they came from. It's what makes them such an unforgettable component of 90s hip hop and r and I'm screenwriter and music enthusiast, Robin Cheney. And I'm writer and professor Ashley B. And this is Rhythm and Schooled. Breaking down 90s R&B one year at a time. Episode nine, 1998, The Boy Is Mine. As I mentioned in my cold open, Aretha Franklin having chart-topping success in 1998 was a surprise to longtime music listeners because it's a rare occurrence when veteran artists are able to top contemporary charts and radio. Especially by 1998, where R&B was constantly evolving and the legendary artists of the past were often seen and treated as relics from a previous era. The legendary Motown act, The Temptations, had a top 30 hit on the R&B hip-hop charts and a number one hit on urban adult contemporary charts with the single Stay. Their album, Phoenix Rising, was their first million seller in over 20 years. And I think this moment is significant and worth highlighting. 
The Temptations began as one of the leading and most popular acts on Motown records. Some of their biggest hits were in the 60s with My Girl, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, Get Ready, to name a few, with David Ruffin often the leading vocalist and Eddie Kendricks as co-lead. Not only making timeless classic songs that continue to endure to this day, the Temptations are often acknowledged as the blueprint for male R&B vocal groups. There's no new addition, no Jodeci, Boys to Men, Drew Hill, etc. without them. They are the standard. They also have had massive success through the decades. During the classic five era of the 60s, where their brand of R&B and soul permeated the pop mainstream, in the 70s, they were the forefront of psychedelic soul with a string of hits like Papa Was a Rolling Stone and Ball of Confusion. By the 80s, they had cooled down a bit, but still churned out hits like Treat Her Like a Lady and the funky Rick James assisted standing on the top, a personal fave. And I should mention, through all of these eras, their lineup of members were constantly in rotation. Despite the ever-changing membership, two things remained untouched. Otis Williams, who has always been in the group, and number two, their ability to make tremendous R&B music that was able to evolve with the changing times. 1998 was different. Hip-hop was dominating. And the gentlemanly soul they set the stage for was fading fast. Even descendants like Boys to Men were doing everything in their power to stay relevant, despite their good guy image. Hip-hop swagger felt necessary to survive the times. Stay is a fascinating single. It samples their own 60s hit, My Girl, but also gives us a smooth, easy-listening R&B song that feels perfect for those listeners missing traditional R&B, but also wanting something fresh. In this current iteration, the lead singer on stay is Theo Peoples. There's something both retro and contemporary about his delivery. R&B was more suggestive now, if not downright explicit. The Temptations were known as being romantic balladeers, but often classically and conservatively so. But here, on stay, the lyrics are romantic and also a bit more suggestive, the chorus using the term rocking, which is often expressed in blues and R&B as a coded way of singing about sex. Adding that contemporary touch gave them an edge. The song was everywhere on Black radio, and it made them triumphant among the very male vocal groups who they had impacted and influenced. When it comes to the times of 1998, let's try laying it on thick and then make your load light as you digest all that made this year what it was. First, in January, the infamous Unabomber Ted Kaczynski pleaded guilty to domestic terrorism, which spanned for about 20 years. He sent bombs to select random people at universities across the Midwest and the West, even planted a bomb on a commercial flight. Three people died, dozens were injured, he was given four life sentences by a federal judge, plus another 30 years after. Kaczynski accepted a plea agreement which spared him the death penalty. I will never forget in 1996 when he was arrested. A new story about it was read on MTV's The Real World's fifth season in Miami by castmate Melissa. Her other castmate, Cynthia, mentioned that she actually knew him or knew of him, and Melissa was in shock. I believe Cynthia mentioned something about being in the know as a native Californian, and Kaczynski's connection to the University of California. These are just the kind of random details I never forget in regards to pop culture. And another big news story became Mammoth in January that seemed to have lingered with us for the rest of the decade. 
then-President Bill Clinton's impeachment, which was prompted by a sexual relationship with White House intern Monica Lewinsky, who began her unpaid position in 1995. She talks about the affair with Pentagon government worker Linda Tripp, who secretly recorded these conversations. This all comes to a head at the beginning of 1998 with the famous I did not have sexual relations with that woman statement Clinton made at a news conference. But all them lies resulted in an impeachment by the U.S. House of Representatives for obstructing justice and lying under oath. In August, he finally confessed to the affair. You had to have been there to witness the salaciousness of the Ken Starr report, talks of cigars and blue dresses. Everyone that was a television talking head, no matter the genre, made mention of this. Jokes were bountiful and inescapable. An everywhere topic that was shaping ways in which we talk about sex, marital monogamy, and power dynamics, amongst other themes publicly. But another story that urged national discourse was hate crime victim Matthew Shepard, a University of Wyoming freshman and political science major who was openly gay and worked for LGBT awareness on his campus, was lured into a seemingly friendly social interaction between two men who would eventually rob, beat, and leave Shepard for dead by a buck fence on a prairie for 18 hours. He couldn't be saved by the time authorities made it to the scene when he was discovered. Public outcry followed by politicians, celebrities, and everyone in between. Reform for these kind of tragedies would come a little later. His perpetrators, Russell Henderson and Aaron McKinney, are serving two consecutive life sentences for kidnapping and murder. Matthew's mother, Judy Shepard, did a national public service announcement that brought awareness to the culture of homophobia and its effects. Her son, a clear example of what language and silence can erupt. I remember this commercial vividly on television, and I gotta tell you, it made me question why we as teens put so much ridicule and shame on queerness. I witnessed this cultivated since middle school, and I made sure I raised my consciousness since. It was this kind of shame that possibly led George Michael down his own path in his late teens and early 20s to keep mum about his own sexuality. It was in April that, in his own words, a, quote, subconsciously deliberate act, end quote, transpired when he was caught in a sexual act by an undercover police officer in Beverly Hills, California. It gave him the room to come out as gay publicly, and admitting that keeping his truth bottled in kept him in a state of unhappiness for a long time. He embraced the situation by writing lyrics about it and fictionalizing it in a video for his song Outside. Dressed as an officer himself, he took back his narrative with big queer energy and as one YouTuber commenter said, it's a big fuck you to those who thought this would end his career, bringing what was once in the shadows to light. Prominent losses this year were Frank Sinatra, Tammy Wynette, comedic actor Phil Hartman, Sonny Bono, and track legend Florence Griffith Joyner. Now I know I promised you a light buzz. I know. So here it is. This year, the Google search engine page and its incorporation became a reality. From two Stanford University students, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, their work on computer programming and data collection systems led to Google. All self-funded until co-founder of Sun Microsystems, Andy Betchelsheim, wrote Google Inc. a check for $100,000. Did you know Google is derived from the word Google, meaning number one followed by 100 zeros? Page and Brin thought the word was a great way to encapsulate the arduous task of collecting information on everything on the internet. That's a quote from them. Seeing the value in these new innovations with the web, David Bowie had been making albums, tracks, even broadcasting live events for online users for a few years, totally understanding that this was the future of music for artists. 
And on September 1st, it all came together when he launched BowieNet, a subscription service that gave fans access to the entire David Bowie experience, including providing exclusive songs and webcasts. But where there were financial artist gains, there were inevitable losses, like Tony Braxton, who had to file for bankruptcy. It's general knowledge now more than ever that standard record label deals could and did, more times than not, leave the artist in a financial chokehold. But luckily, Tony is still here and in a better place than she once was. She survived that, plus the unflattering Oprah interview of the time about the topic. Keeping it moving, in film, as a teen invested in horror and my R&B, I was ready for Brandy in the sequel to I Know What You Did Last Summer, called I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, as the Black best friend to Jennifer Love Hewitt's Julie, now in college, and on a Doomer Island getaway where Ben Willis was waiting to finish his business with her. Apparently, Brandy made stipulations with producers that she wouldn't die in the film, which became a common thing for Black music acts showing up in these horror movies. I mean, Usher survives the faculty, LL Cool J survives Michael Myers, and there was a little bit of an upswing for Black people in horror movies post-Screams 2's self-reflective and deeply introspective take on it. Biggest movies of the year were Saving Private Ryan, Armageddon, There's Something About Mary, A Bug's Life, The Waterboy, and The Truman Show. But one of my favorites were flicks like the X-Files movie, continuing the saga of the widely popular television series of the time. Where season five left off, the film picks up on, inflating our interest in the government and global conspiracy about the existence of extraterrestrials and the will-they-won't-they chemistry between the alluring Gillian Anderson's Dana Scully and David Duchovny's fine-ass Fox Mulder. This series throughout the 90s was a big part of why we have internet fan community culture the way we have it today. The X-Files practically did that. I was and am a big old nerd who loves a good conspiracy plot. As one major television series was at its pinnacle, one was concluding its final chapter. Seinfeld ended its run with 76 million viewers watching in May. Then in June, HBO premiered the lasting brand series that is Sex and the City. And that inescapable Paula Cole song in the popular TV show Dawson's Creek made its premiere as well. Created by Kevin Williamson, its humor and wit matched the energy he created with the success of Scream. I only watched maybe one, two seasons, but it was definitely cool for the times. Whew, quite a year. 1998 is the year I started college. And as you presented these events, a lot of the news felt ironically like it just happened yesterday, but also like it happened a million years ago at the same time, especially the impeachment of Bill Clinton. I felt like that was all anyone was talking about forever. It was constantly on the news. And you're right. The jokes about it were endless. Every time a comedian appeared on anything, they had something to say about Bill and or Monica Lewinsky. And, you know, the tragedy around Matthew Shepard is really seared in my brain and raised my consciousness as well. Just want to let folks know there is currently a documentary on Tubi called Matthew Shepard is a Friend of Mine, and it is very, very good, bringing light to the kind-hearted person he was and how his death affected an entire generation. The passing of Flojo was a really big deal to me. In my early years, I briefly ran track in school, and I wanted to be just like her. She was truly the flyest. And on a much lighter note, thank you, Brandy, for your contract stipulations, because the 90s horror films got a bit more inclusive, and it was nice seeing Black folks in them that weren't going to die in the first few minutes. <laughs> I really thought I was grown in college watching Sex in the City. <laughs> that show was such a huge cultural moment. 
And when I finally moved to New York in my 20s, I realized how much of a fantasy it was that Carrie was a writer living like a millionaire with Manolo Blahniks and Jimmy Choo. Every, <laughs> everybody thought that they were going to be Carrie Bradshaw when they moved to New York. You're not the Seriously. only one. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> The top 20 R&B singles of 1998, according to Playback FM. Number one, The Boy Is Mine by Brandy and Monica. An incredible song, and I can't wait for y'all to hear the legacy segment about this duet. Number two, I'm Your Angel by R. Kelly and Celine Dion. Number three, The First Night by Monica. Number four, Nobody's Supposed to Be Here by Deborah Cox. I love the drama of this song and the theme, you know, the startling surprise of love coming into your life unexpectedly. It's such a fantastic song through and through. Number five, we have Nice and Slow by Usher. They call me U-S-H-E-R. Y'all already know. This is top tier 90s Usher. And number six, we have Too Close by Next. I wish y'all could have seen my face the first time I paid attention to the lyrics. At number seven, we have Angel of Mine by Monica. At number eight, All My Life by Casey and JoJo. Who would have thought Casey and JoJo would have massive commercial success when they split from Jodeci? This was a really, really big hit for them. At number nine, Have You Ever by Brandy. At number 10, No, No, No Part Two by Destiny's Child featuring Wyclef Jean. I love this bop. Often cited as the remix that saved the group. And this really set them apart. And this is kind of where Beyonce's sing rap delivery is born. How Deep Is Your Love by Drew Hill featuring Redman. At 12, Do Wop That Thing by Lauren Hill. At 13, I Get Lonely by Janet Jackson. At 14, Let's Ride by Montel Jordan. At 15, My All by Mariah Carey. 16, Lately by Divine. At number 17, we have Heartbreak Hotel by Whitney Houston featuring Kelly Price and Faith Evans. At 18, Make It Hot by Nicole Ray, one of my favorite opening rap verses in an R&B song. Mocha killed it. I love this song so much, and I love Nicole's vocal delivery here, too. It's so dope. At 19, we have I Don't Ever Want to See You Again by Uncle Sam. And at 20, we have They Don't Know by John B. I remember Monica's The First Night video with her seemingly half-Black, half-Asian scene partner. And this is where a friend at the time was swooning over this guy. She could not stop talking about him. And he was cute, you know. It was like her, I like Monica better coming out statement to me <laughs> that I'll touch on a little bit later with the year's best single. But I really liked the song the video as well. It's totally clear to me now that Jermaine Dupri produced it, sampling Love Hangover by Diana Ross. And OMG, They Don't Know by John V is timeless. It is a classic. Mm -hmm. I still love listening to it. I keep thinking about your brief insight into him as an artist. And I got to say, I commend him for sticking to his established fan base and never minding the possibility of crossover. I was also a fan of Nobody's Supposed to Be Here and No, No, No Part 2, which I agree with you. It's a game changer for Destiny's Child. We probably don't get a successful Destiny's Child without this song. And I can't wait to talk a little bit more about some of these singles mentioned in other sections here later. Me too. 
And now for the 41st annual Grammy Awards that were held on February 24th, 1999 to honor music from 1998. The nominees for the best rhythm and blues song of 1998 are Doo-Wop That Thing by Lauryn Hill, All My Life by Casey and Jojo, The Boy Is Mine by Brandy and Monica, Lean On Me by Kurt Franklin and the Family featuring Mary J. Blige, R. Kelly, Bono, and Crystal Lewis. And A Rose is Still a Rose by Aretha Franklin. And the winner is Doo-Wop, That Thing by Lauryn Hill. Okay, I'm a little taken aback by Kirk Franklin track with R. Kelly, but <laughs> I, did, I was like, <laughs> listen, <laughs> I, that took me for a little bit for a loop. But no, I appreciate this milestone recognition for Lauryn Hill. I do enjoy what she, I, we're going to get into it more obviously, but what she's done as an artist is pretty it, it's pretty amazing so it it makes a lot of sense that this song would win this year and I, I totally totally agree I am very very happy with this win and also would have been just as happy with the boy is mine winning as well this is our shortest Grammy consensus yet <laughs> <laughs> yes indeed <laughs> Doing the Impossible, this is where we choose just a few of our favorite tracks from the year. I want to start with an honorable mention up top to Keep It Real, a Coco from SWV, and John B. duet featuring Jay-Z. It's such a saucy piece of work that I don't see enough mention of. Jay-Z said, and I shall return to sweat out your perm, as a hard cosign to the lyrical banter between the two singers. Its boldness I find both amusing and delightful. It's on the indie romantic comedy soundtrack for Have Plenty and the entire album I highly recommend for R&B heads. But the first deep dive track I want to dip into here is Don't Stop the Music by Playa. We've exhausted conversations about great male R&B groups and bands during this decade. But when we say they were both bountiful and multi-talented, the volume alone is enough for a lucrative researched book deal. Enter Playa. Originally known as A Touch of Class from Louisville, Kentucky, the trio Jawan Peacock, Smokey, Benjamin Bush, Black, and Stephen Garrett, Static, began to establish themselves as a harmonic force in the late 1980s. They would eventually catch the eye of Jodeci's Devante Swing and plug into his swing mob machine, working on Jodeci projects, but of course, as mentioned earlier, the serendipity happens with the Super Friends. Produced by, who else but Timbaland, it's a small travesty that Don't Stop the Music didn't catch on a little bit more. There was an incredibly consistent theme, style, aura, and ethos to the Super Friends. Again, that was a refreshing alternative to both Gangster and Jiggy Flair that was a part of the Black art culture during this period. A song that was about fun and honoring the way music makes us feel. If you partnered Don't Stop the Music with its dance floor beat with the reflective track I Am Music, on Timbaland and Magoo's sophomore album, Indecent Proposal from 2001, a track that features a solo static, there's a consistent blend there that's successful in drawing a bigger crowd toward the nature of Black joy. But the single and the album titled Cheers to You didn't take off. Smokey and Black have been active in music over the years, and Static made huge waves with his work with Aaliyah and Lil Wayne, but we would sadly lose him in 2008. 
For a while, only a slither of the album was available on Spotify, but I am now happy to report, thanks to Robin's mixtape magic, that the whole album is now available for your listening pleasure. I am so excited about this. Fun fact, Static is the architect behind the Catchy Pony by Genuine that everyone knows and loves. <laughs> that is such a great fun fact. And play a flute under the radar, and it's no fault of their own. Like you said, the 90s were just crammed with male groups, as we repeatedly have stated. But I am so glad you brought Playa and this song to light. First, the song is just so great. Timbaland's hypnotic beats just take everything to another level. And when I realized it was on Spotify, I think I played it like five times in a row, maybe 20. <laughs> For listeners who are not familiar with them, they are worth your time. Please check them out. Also, Cheers to You is another essential jam by them. I love it. It's so good. It's such a good slow song. Right? <laughs> My other island pick here is Trippin' by Total, Bad Boy's first girl group made up of Jakima Rayner, Keisha Spivey, and Pamela Long, wowed many R&B fans with singles from their first album already. Yet, keeping up with the times as Puffy was known to do, we see the indelible impact of Missy and Timbaland yet again on their first single off of their second album with Trippin'. A Timbaland Space Age track with a sample from My Mic Sounds Nice by Salt and Peppa with down-home, sex-positive lyrics penned by Missy, Trippin' is made literal in the song's chorus. But the figurative use of the term itself, for as long as I can remember, mainly by the Black family, needed no explanation. But less defined for some listeners. Trippin', commonly an expression of anxiousness compounded at time with irrationality over any internal or external circumstance. Buggin' is another term used in the song with a similar explanation. In Total's case, you can trip over your infatuation with someone, which I'm sure almost all of us have at one point in our lives. Trippin' was Total's biggest single at number seven on Billboard US's Hot 100 and number three on the R&B and hip hop chart. Total was truly having a moment. And them working with Missy and Timbaland feels like a no brainer. Like, of course they would make magic together. This song is so dope. It's definitely one of my favorite songs by Total, and I never got tired of it no matter how much they played it on the radio, and they played it a lot on the radio. <laughs> but let's take, a, let's take a, a nice plane ride to another location here with Made It Back by Beverly Knight featuring Redman. Because I am never one to forget our UK brothers and sisters. The crossover smash Soul to Soul and deeper cut artists like Omar have been providing to the wealth of R&B's lineage beyond the U.S. borders. Add on Jamaican-rooted, British-raised Beverly Knight, a multi-hyphenate singer praised by both Quincy Jones and Prince, has an abundance of accolades and entertainment credits under her belt since the mid-90s, all the way up to today. The award-winning single Made It Back is a poetic self-empowerment song. It's a journey about how doubt surrounds us, but we can climb through it more powerful than ever. The might of her vocal prowess is heard the very second the music begins. You can tell Aretha Franklin is one of her earliest influences. With a hook and riff sample from Sheik's Good Times and hip-hop-inspired inserts, Made It Back works with the hip-hop soul sound topping it off with a feature by Redman, who is always a lyrical good time whenever he appears. You can find Made It Back on her much-praised second album, Prodigal Sister. I once heard a little rumor about a documentary about UK Black music soul artists floating around, but have not seen any confirmation of this. If you have, please let us know. 
Oh, yes. Please let us know. And thank you, Ashley, for bringing this song to light. Until you mentioned it for the deep dive, I had totally forgot about it. It has such a feel-good vibe to it. That good time sample gives it a warm throwback feel. And I can see folks jam to this at the cookout. Great selection. <laughs> now, let's cool down a little from the cookout jam. Let's close the shades. Let's light some incense. And vibe on Come Over to My Place by Davina, the breakthrough artist in the vein of blending classic jazz and soul with contemporary sensibilities. Come Over to My Place is just a morsel of the entire thematic mood that her debut album, Best of Both Worlds, invokes. Davina's low, smoky serenading opens with an invitation for someone she'd like to get to know better. You can relax and chill. She'll do what you feel. I mentioned before this is the sweet spot for rainy Saturday tea R&B in the annals of this music history. So adult, sensual without explicivity, nostalgic but very new, vibe setting with soothing melodies, and a steady beat that you can nod your head to. But in that chill way that makes you look like you're not sweating the circumstances. Davina has an incredible spiritual intelligence in relation to music. Born Davina Bussey in Detroit, she's been a student of the rudiments of music theory and has many roles in the studio, from being in front of the mic and to engineering. Come Over to My Place made it to the Billboard Hot 100, and along with her other single, So Good for the Hoodlum soundtrack, garnered Davina some buzz. But she's been mostly known as an underground fave since, continuing to release music on her own, and for many listeners, she hasn't lost her touch. I love the endlessly jazzy soul vibe of this song. Definitely one of the more obscure artists of the neo-soul era. But Best of Both Worlds is like discovering buried treasure for those who may not know who she is. She is definitely a vibe. And you perfectly <laughs> curated that vibe, <laughs> Ashley. The moody, chill-out feel of the song is hypnotic. And yes, thanks for mentioning So Good. I love that song as well. It's just as mesmerizing and soothing as Come Over to My Place. And another intriguing single from this year was Be Careful by Sparkle. It is astronomically difficult, almost impossible for me not to have an incredible soft spot for this song. The melodramatics, its ability for listeners to heavily weigh both sides in a duet about a fractured relationship... One man and one woman having choice sung words with each other about the relatable situations of not feeling appreciated, possible infidelity, gossiping, unemployment, all wrapped in a crescendo of non-communication. Now we're just complaining at each other. If when we face this first on, we wouldn't be hurling warning signals at each other. The essence of Be Careful is brilliantly crafted. This has to be why the song received so much strong airplay during this moment helping Sparkle's debut go platinum. All spearheaded, including one half of the performance, by R. Kelly. Sparkle is Stephanie Edwards, a woman once praised as Little Diana, likening her to Diana Ross, and she was another Chicago native who met R. Kelly through mutual music acquaintances, which led her to do background vocals on Aaliyah's first album. Sparkle decided to move on from her business partnership with Kelly after her first album due to creative differences. It's been the what we know now and a little bit then of it all that makes it a little hard to discuss the song in a celebratory manner. I almost considered not talking about it at all, but I had to remind myself of the principles I live by as a woman and an educator. There is no point in suppressing history because we have to face and critique the messy ugliness of it. We are all many things at one time. 
R. Kelly is no exception. The music he has created has been subjectively phenomenal, and his ability to keep the pulse on his target consumers for decades is a difficult task he has labored successfully. For Sparkle, I feel like she deserves more than what she's been given. My heart goes out to her. Her hard work and no-nonsense attitude deserves grace in the woods that R. Kelly fostered. As always, Ashley, you have an amazing ability to articulate complex truths because it is really hard to find ways to speak about R. Kelly's music without acknowledging what we know now about him. Be Careful was such a dope song because of the way it was crafted. This is one of the first times I remember an argument with this kind of dramatic and theatrical flair in an R&B song. Felt like some stuff we shouldn't be overhearing or something we were eavesdropping on, which made the song all the more brilliantly consumed. Oh my God. <laughs> that's spot on because that song right you're like yeah that's right i'm on sparkle side wait a minute r kelly got a point like <laughs> every time every time it's one of those songs and now for my deep dive five can't let her go by boys to men i have these arguments with myself sometimes when it comes to certain groups and artists As much as I enjoy listening to music, I spend a lot of time analyzing it, contextualizing it, and theorizing. Boys to Men happen to be one of those groups that makes me spin endlessly with intricate thoughts. First and foremost, when it comes to the 90s male R&B, they, along with Jodeci, set a standard and a contemporary blueprint for male R&B vocal groups. And Boys to Men supersede Jodeci with regards to commercial success and endurance. And those white boy bands that kind of infiltrate pop by late 90s into the 2000s, that's the influence of Boys to Men. But that's another story for another day. I've always believed Boys to Men were great singers worthy of their massive success, but I admit I've been lukewarm on some of their output. There are certain songs by them I absolutely love, but what made them huge pop stars is also where I'm most lukewarm. It's their penchant for middle of the road pop love ballads. And I'm in the minority here because they have millions of adoring fans who love those pop ballads. I prefer Boys to Men when they lean heavy into their R&B and soul. By 1998, Boys to Men's good guy image started to dissolve a bit. They were under massive pressure after the monstrous success of their second album too. As I mentioned in a previous episode, hip hop's domination had a massive effect on every aspect of music especially R&B. Boys to Men were trying to reposition themselves on Black radio with songs that had hip-hop edge and appeal. On their 1997 album, Evolution, their last with Motown, they dropped a really smooth, upbeat, heavy-hitting single, Can't Let Her Go. The song was released as a single in 1998, which is why I'm mentioning it here. Even in the video, Boys to Men give us Timberland boot, hip-hop swagger, hats to the back, white tees, that Carlton Banks look was a distant memory. The Evolution album was met with lackluster sales and mixed critical reviews, but Can't Let Her Go is undeniable. Co-produced by Puff Daddy, he gives them a certified banger, typical of Bad Boy's imprint of silky hip-hop soul. It's upbeat, it's funky, it's infectious, it has a dance all night feel to it, and they sound fantastic on it. Honestly, this might be top 10 boys to men for me. Oh, totally for me too. This again is one of their songs that I really enjoy because I tend to agree. Sappy love pop ballads aren't as appealing and they go very stale very easily when they become everyone's wedding song. 
But this track for Boys to Men had more edge to it. I really enjoyed that. And now for my next pick, Heartbreak Hotel by Whitney Houston featuring Faith Evans and Kelly Price. On our 1990 episode, Ashley and I discussed the complicated relationship Whitney Houston had with Black audiences at the time and theorized as to why. We also acknowledge that Whitney's evolution as a recording artist through the 90s is fascinating to witness. Post-Bodyguard, Whitney was one of the biggest artists in the world. That soundtrack reshaped the trajectory of her career and launched her into another stratosphere. When we get to the tremendous Waiting to Excel soundtrack in 1995, Whitney is also an actress and has now successfully straddled the tightrope of R&B and pop in a way that allowed her to have massive success with a diverse array of fans, Black and white. That complicated relationship dissolved, and it felt like her connection to Black audiences was stronger than ever. But with her marriage to Bobby Brown, scandals and tabloids ran amok, trying to fishbowl every aspect of her life something we would later learn had severe emotional consequences. When we get to 1998 on her My Love Is Your Love album, we see a fully confident Whitney. She appears so self-assured, so in her moment, so contemporary. Heartbreak Hotel is my favorite single from the album. And as I've said a million times, Whitney in her R&B bag is my favorite Whitney. Joining her on this gorgeous track are Faith Evans and Kelly Price, at the time seen as two R&B vocalists whose debut albums were brimming with sophisticated soul. As vocalists, Faith and Kelly harken back to a time of true soul singing and both distinctive in their approach. This song about heartbreak with these three dynamic vocalists is incredible. A song of such rich emotional resonance and soulful restraint. Whitney is lead vocalist here, singing about a relationship gone wrong. And Kelly and Faith play supportive friends who lift her up in the bridge and choruses, respectively. And it sounds so beautiful. What I love is that no one is out singing the other. There's no competition here. They all have a moment to shine on this track, and it's stunning. It feels like one of those truly spectacular moments etched in time. 90s R&B at its finest. This was a fantastic assessment of Whitney with a really great R&B triad here. I definitely noticed and saw the firm shift during this period, and it was certainly Whitney's attitude and artistic POV here that feels true to who she is. And I think that's why I was drawn to it a lot more. I love this song quite a bit. You add Faith and Kelly Price into the mix. You, all you want to do is sing along. It's a great song. I used to hear it a lot <laughs> on the radio. It's so true. And speaking of Kelly Price, the original friend of mine is my next pick. I love hip-hop. I love R&B. I love R&B and hip-hop collaborations. But the codependency happening between hip-hop and R&B by the time we get to 1998 was starting to feel excessive. R&B, particularly mainstream R&B, was having a bit of an identity crisis, something that would be argued and debated in later decades. I say all this to say, when Kelly Price debuted with the original version of Friend of Mine, it was a breath of fresh air, a true-to-its-roots R&B song sung with soulful, earth-shaking passion, and her tremendous vocal range reminiscent of Aretha Franklin, Gladys Knight, Jennifer Holliday, Etta James, you know, that deep-down, bottom-of-the-ocean kind of soul singing. It was thunderous just hearing that chorus and those vocals. This was such a beautiful moment because the song topped the R&B charts for weeks. It's like we all seem to be jonesing for some super soulful R&B. 
And let me just discuss the lyrics. R&B has always been a genre that can in infinite ways profoundly express the immense pain of betrayal. And Kelly knew how to illuminate that pain. This time, it's the double whammy of heartbreak of your best friend taking your man. Like, this is the worst betrayal of them all, and Kelly and her background singers plunge us into that anguish with gospel-like fervor. Despite this being an emotional apocalypse, the song is so catchy, you can't help but sing along, especially with that chorus. Now, I'm only speculating, but I think the R&B ladies of the moment definitely got a little wake-up call when this dropped. Female R&B recording artists had to at least be a little nervous hearing this because Kelly proved in just one song she was a force to be reckoned with. So spot on about R&B's identity crisis, Kelly Price was channeling soul in such a rooted way, and it felt like a much-needed wave under the hot beach sun with that chorus that sounds so much like a choir. Like, it's kind of fun to sing along to. And you are intently listening to the lyrics because it's basically mess and tea time and certainly relatable to so many people. And when we say singing, Kelly Price is at the peak of the hill. I am in all of her talent. Yes, I love I love that assessment, actually. All right. For my next pick, Are You That Somebody by Aliyah. This was one of those songs that captivated the ears of music lovers everywhere. Here, we truly are immersed in the fullness of Timbaland as a genius producer. If you foolishly had any doubts about this man's brilliance, this song might clear that up real quick. Are You That Somebody is one of the most experimental R&B tracks ever produced. Inspired by the Oompa Loompa song from Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, this became one of the most memorable and adored songs of 1998. A song heavy on space-age funk, progressive R&B, hip-hop, and um, baby cries? Yep, sampling a baby on a track is some next-level stuff. Seriously. The song was written by Static Major and Timbaland, and Timbaland also appears with a clever and humorous featured rap verse. But it's Aaliyah that makes it all work so precisely. Her gorgeously lean vocals and ultra-confident cool bring this track to life, adding a sensual vibrancy to the experimental beat. There's so much texture in her vocals and her delivery here. Other than Missy, I don't think anyone sounded better over a Timberland track than she did. Lyrically, the song has such a brash attitude, humor, and slyness, trying to keep a secretive, romantic encounter on the hush while proclaiming your empowered sense of self with lyrics like, boy, I gotta watch my back because I'm not just anybody. You damn right about that. I love that sister girl attitude in this. It's so relatable. Her persona comes through with lines like, sometimes I'm goody goody, right now I'm naughty naughty. Honestly, it makes me think of Janet Jackson, a clear influence on Aaliyah's sound and style. The song was a massive hit, appearing on the Dr. Doolittle soundtrack and remains one of my favorite Aaliyah songs and one of my favorite songs of the decade. Very well said. I feel like this is her most crossover song and the video was damn near mesmerizing to many people with the bird perched on her hand, the choreography, and the setting in general. It was the perfect complement for the production of the song and the vibe of the crew. For sure, for sure. That video, yes, so memorable. All right, y'all. And for my next fake, Sitting Home by Total. This is probably my favorite Total song. 
These ladies really carved out a distinct space during the tidal wave of girl groups in the 90s. So much of that had to do with lead singer Pam's distinct vocals and their toughened edge in step with Bad Boy Records' hip-hop soul production of the time. Bad Boy Records reigned in this era, blending R&B melodies with hip-hop beats, and Total was a part of that magic. Sitting Home is a mid-tempo cool-down groove about the agony of being lonely while in a relationship. Being with someone who doesn't really want to be with you. It's that breaking point when two people are clearly growing apart, but you long for what was instead of what is. I love the song because it could easily be a really sad song, but the mid-tempo track won't allow the song to be completely despairing, which I kind of love. It's sad, but it's not hopeless. Honestly, I don't even know what else to say. This is my jam. Yeah. Again, the video totally makes it clear for audiences that this isn't too sad of a song and certainly, like you said, not hopeless. And I also want to shout out another single and compliments of this one, What About Us, for the Soul Food soundtrack this same year that made some noise for Total, Timbaland, and Missy as a trio of collaborators as well. Yes. School is in session. So with our legacy segment, we just want to have longer discussions regarding artists, careers, albums, moments, and movements in the 90s, trying to add nuance and to contextualize music history for y'all. Because this music history is massive and we can't dismiss it. Let's embrace it and all the complexities that come with it. I gotta be honest, I am exhausted and disinterested in anything having to do with R&B singers Brandy and Monica, past and present, having any sort of conflict with each other. The swarm of information about the biggest R&B single, The Hottest Song of 1998, is all about how these two were opposing forces. Even at the pinnacle of their versus battle in August of 2020, it seems some were watching simply to sniff out a brawl. Because heaven forbid, two now grown-ass women in their 40s couldn't just sing their hits and go home. I barely remember the verses. Maybe I watched the replay and certainly don't remember watching it entirely. Even as a hardcore fan of both singers, I had little interest in the allure of the platform itself, setting again a tone of competitiveness and fueling the who's better debates. This isn't to say I'm immune to intrigue about a little scrapping or gawking at a train wreck. Much like the gif, I love mess. You should see my YouTube algorithm. But my intention here is to highlight how two wonderful R&B artists made a dope song. Its production was a part of a growing catalog of forward-sounding rhythm and blues aimed right at the exennial and millennial generations. A song that delights in its conflict, that is naturally fun in its fictitiousness. I don't need or necessarily want to wish history and current different for Brandy and Monica. Seriously, I respect both women for being true to who they were and are. That being said, how the finishing act of the song came to be is a pretty intriguing set of events. We have the Milk Toast 1982 pop single, The Girl Is Mine, from Michael Jackson in a musical nerf battle with Paul McCartney. The back and forth banter is exactly what the title implies. One asserting that they're the sole subject of a woman's romantic affection and vice versa. The song is objectively corny, possibly pop pandering, but also sincere. I mean, it's Michael and Paul. They were both this corny, especially together. Now, sidebar, 
Their other duet, Say, 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 is a jam. Fight me. (laughs) This peak number two first single off of Thriller was so astronomically fit for the mainstream bootstrap Ebony and Ivory Perfect Harmony Reagan era. So it obviously lacked punch, flair, the aggressiveness that these types of disagreements prosper. So let's fast forward to an era with a different energy, a different kind of candidness that pop culture was inspiring. And all roads point to one Jerry Springer. If you were in the teenage sauce, whenever you heard, Jerry, 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 you knew your television was about to deliver you some mess and you couldn't wait for it because it was fun sneakily being in on grown folks' business. And these were the regular everyday people with everyday problems, not the lifestyles of the rich and famous intrigue of the past decade. The common, the us on the screen was both celebrated and exploited. Not only did I witness a knockdown drag out from my bedroom window between two girls who couldn't have been much older than me with a select few watching once, these kind of moments were now a national spectator sensation. Only a few years my senior, Brandy was watching too. One day, a similar tussle between multiple women over one man sparked her indignancy. This is dumb, she thought, but it would make a great song. The genesis of Brandy's sophomore effort wasn't smooth. Uninspired by what she was hearing and likely dismayed because her Timbaland and Missy requests couldn't get greenlit because of their own preoccupation with Aaliyah and the Super Friends, things began to look up when Rodney Darkchild Jerkins came along as the album's primary producer. During the whole of this production, titled Never Say Never, you feel Brandy's delight in being Rodney's muse. Even during the initial production stages of The Boy Is Mine, they wrote it together along with LaShawn Daniels and Jaffe Tejada and Rodney's brother, Fred Jerkins III. Even if you can't imagine this single with just Brandy's voice, this did happen. And Brandy knew something was missing. Co-producer Dallas Austin once spoke of Brandy's artist and repertoire guy, Paris Davis, envisioning a play on the MJ McCartney jingle. According to Dallas, he also brings up Monica's name, because apparently it was in the air that these two R&B teen singers didn't like each other. There seemed to be this media-fueled acrimony between them because they were consistently being compared. Similar age, similar music genre, similar timing, sure. But that didn't mean it was necessary to anticipate avatars of them in a Street Fighter II limited special edition. But this tang in the sauce became the secret ingredient to the R&B opera. It was too easy to play off of these assumptions, and it brought a little bit more energy to the duet. Yet in a more humorous manner. Like, y'all really need to stop looking for beef where there is none. But then there's this whole thing about them not recording the song in the same studio together because it just wasn't working. Possibly there was no chemistry between the two as singers and as co-collaborators. So Rodney recorded Brandy and Dallas recorded Monica in two separate states. What became additionally intentional was ensuring that both youngins brought their own personalities to the track so that no one upstaged the other. And you can tell, Brandy's attitude and Monica's attitude are on par with the tension that the song attempts to conjure. There's no break where Brandy insists that they're not going to fight about this, okay? Monica's a lover and a fighter. Most notably during the MTV Video Music Awards rehearsal September of that year, where they were slated to perform the song together on stage, it was later admitted that Monica's knuckles did make contact with Brandy's face. What it all seemingly boils down to is two young singers who couldn't be compared because when you strip all the glam and celebrity, they were just so socially different. Their communication skills and vibes were like oil and water, and all of that contrasting energy is what likely made the song so catchy. 
it seems an actual beef was manifested simply from actually working on this single. The Boy's Mind was number one for practically the entire summer. It was the first Hot 100 number one song for Brandy, Monica, and Rodney. The song also won a Grammy. But let's take a moment to prop up Rodney Jerkins as a force in the future sound of R&B in line with Timbaland and Pharrell Williams. An Atlantic City native who worked tirelessly to create his own original sound and becoming a songwriter to reckon with. So motivated that he secured a publishing deal with EMI at only 17 years old. Combining minor chords with beat machines, piano, synth, and strings, Rodney was inspired by the orchestral Philly soul sound of the 70s, but wanted to bring it towards the horizon of the 21st century with accompanying glitch beats and other innovative bass and drum equations to align with a more forward ethos that paired well with his admirable ambition. His executive role on The Boy's Mind and Never Say Never is sensational. The song itself certainly sparked schoolyard debates about who your fighter was. Mine was Brandy. I liked her overall project slightly more than Monica's, which was my friend's Vanna's choice. Our own back and forth about this was earnestly friendly in tone. Our differences are what helped shape me into understanding differences of opinion are an inevitable part of social currency, and to embrace them as a path towards empathy and intellectual curiosity. And in the light drawer of the Stranger Than Fiction category, two very different people with arguably zero chemistry managed to create magic and massive success with one song. That's the kicker. This was not a path of Petal's narrative, nor a tale of how they came together at the end. They didn't. And good. (laughs) I love all the texture and dimensions you gave this with regards to this incredible song. I often felt like the comparison stuff with musical peers is kind of an uninteresting way to engage with music. I mean, yes, there can be arguments made about who we think is better or whatever, but it's not a very inspired way to discuss artists, in my opinion. And I'm not saying I've never had these debates, but I'm saying we can have a more nuanced conversation. And also the incessant comparison stuff happens way too much on social media these days. Yes. But anyway, (laughs) I love that chaotic energy around Brandy and Monica allowed them to make something magical out of it. I've always been a fan of both of them, and I still am. They may be peers in the R&B game, but their approach to music is so different. I love the way this song sounds. I love how creative it is. I wish more duets and collaborations took risks this way. And speaking of taking risks... One of my favorite Kanye West songs is Champion from his now classic 2007 album, Graduation. I had the song on heavy rotation for years. The clever lyricism and track gave me energized charge on those mornings it felt hard to get out of bed, especially those 14 years I lived in New York City. Because on that track, Kanye spit one of my favorite lines, quote unquote, Lauren Hill says her heart was in Zion. I wish her heart was still in rhyming. Because who the kids going to listen to? Like me, Kanye is a huge Lauren Hill fan. And apparently like me and so many of us, we were missing Lauren. And not just missing her, we profoundly felt the void she left in music. Hip-hop and R&B specifically. It's a strange kind of void because Lauren is still with us, still alive but she wasn't putting out albums. Her disappearance from the world of music has been shrouded in YouTube rabbit hole conspiracies, rumors, debates, endless gossip, and nasty legal battles. And it's hard not to wonder what could have been. 
and should have been when a hurricane blows through the world the way she did with her staggering album, The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. Hailed as a masterwork, one of the greatest albums ever made, adorned with tons of awards and worthy of every single one of them. Lauren's career felt like a force of nature, something the world of music had never seen before. Debuting as one third of the Fugees as an MC of profound lyrical dexterity with an almost surgical slash scientific approach to rhyming, she set hip hop on fire. Crowned as one of the greatest rappers of all time in a genre when way too often women are painted as novelty acts, Lauren was an intimidating feminine force that could battle any willing male rapper. And yet she was also an amazing singer whose raw emotive vocals harken back to the early days of the Motown sound with the heaping spoonful of 70s soul for good measure. The album's impact is still being felt to this day from doo-wop harmonies, Motown era R&B, vintage 70s soul vibes, hip hop consciousness, reggae rhythms, black liberation philosophies, and Christian spirituality. This album was seismic in how it repositioned and pushed pop music forward. By 1998, hip-hop was shaken to the core by the senseless violence that in previous years took two of its giants, Tupac Shakur and Notorious B.I.G. By now, hip-hop culture had completely permeated pop culture, and mainstream hip-hop record sales soared while the dominant themes of money, drugs, sex, and violence remained. The vibe was more club and party-driven, though. Lauryn Hill was an alternative from the norm. Another obvious descendant of the Native Tongues Collective of Afrocentric pride, Lauren brought a renewed level of Black conscious liberation theology to hip hop. On her debut, chart-topping single, Do Wop That Thing, Lauren warns women to discern reckless men and self-destructive materialistic obsession. Preachy, but so cleverly infectious and melodic, you can easily digest her sermonizing. She also pushed Christian spirituality to the forefront of her sound. Prior to that, hip-hop embraced the 5% teachings, but anything other than that was often considered to be cheesy. The Miseducation album on songs like Lost Ones, The Final Hour, Forgive Them Father are steeped in biblical scriptures, psalms, and warnings of Judgment Day. Lauren magnified Christ-centered spirituality not only in hip-hop, but also in R&B. As stated before, the influences are clear. Motown, 70s Soul, Aretha, Gladys, but also the spiritual contextualizing of Stevie Wonder, the perceptive, intimate songwriting style of Joni Mitchell, and the raw, eerie passion of Donny Hathaway. You can hear it all, but she's also stretching and pushing R&B into new realms. Her brand of soul is so deep, so aching, it's spiritually raw. On songs like X Factor, where she teaches us the word reciprocity, on her Mary J. Blige collab, I Used to Love Him, and on When It Hurts So Bad, she expresses the vast complexities of love and heartbreak. On the Carlos Santana assisted to Zion, she expresses God's love and divine providence through her unborn child. Her voice aches with such sorrow, such nakedness. We not only feel her emotions, but we are forced to reckon with our own. And again, the lyrics, woof, Lauren is a poet. She can articulate the messy terrain of our emotions with such startling clarity. All these songs feel like prayers. Again, she seamlessly fuses references of spirituality and religion in love songs. She doesn't leave God out of the trials, tribulations, and joys of relationships. 
Historically, R&B and soul evolved from gospel, remaining inspired by gospel singing and stylizing, but the God figure is often just implied as a way to separate the sacred and the secular. Lauren often spoke directly to God in R&B. Like Stevie Wonder, who seemed to contextualize God often in his music, Lauren confidently dissolved these boundaries. Other album highlights include her ethereal duet, Nothing Even Matters with D'Angelo, her remarkable Frankie Valley cover, Can't Take My Eyes Off of You, and Everything is Everything, assisted by a teenage John Legend on piano, is an affirming anthemic gem that feels like hip-hop, soul, and religious fervor all at once. At the age of 23, Lauryn Hill created a masterpiece, one that still stands the test of time. It's her only studio album, which makes me both sad and grateful. Of course, we wanted more as fans, but I'm also thankful this astonishing album even exists at all. I just want to say that Final Hour is one of my favorite hip-hop songs ever. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. lyrical masterpiece. I think this album is truly the definition of timeless. Folks are still holding tight to it and analyzing it, discussing the production process in meaningful ways from then until now. It's really incredible to witness because it's still a piece of art that will absolutely never spoil. And you highlighted its layers perfectly. It's basically an accumulation of who Lauren had become at this point in her life. 23 years, I can't even imagine. Right? It doesn't make sense. I mean, I could make an album like this at 40 plus. (laughs) I can't do it at 23. Right. Pre-Jesus Walks, you've got Lauren's way of putting Christian spirituality behind a dope beat and astute rhymes. I think that's that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And you can almost say, who didn't have this album in 1998? What was compounded with the music was, one, how strikingly beautiful Lauren Hill was for young Black girls to see a dark-skinned woman with natural hair. Mm-hmm. I'm sure she inspired many people to get locks. She was on magazine covers, and two, her desire to make art and be an artist, not to be pop, not to be mainstream, not to be everyone's favorite person, not to be famous. She was an artist, first and foremost. And I think the fame beast circled her orbit because Lauren was so genuine, and she hit the sweet spot at the intersection of so-called crossover R&B and neo-soul at the exact right time. Mm -hmm. Like, she was right on time. When you said she brought Black consciousness, liberation, theology to hip hop, that was that's a beautiful phrase. Um, those those terms reach so many people. Right? You, you are you're you're getting you're getting Black liberals and conservatives. Boom. I'm not sure how to feel about Lauren again not releasing a more proper sophomore solo album. Do I think she could have the discography of a Stevie Wonder? Absolutely. But playing the what-if game, again, it just seems futile. Right. Like, I want to, but I'm like, let's just let it go. Um, <laughs> I'm grateful for what she's given us. Likewise. Like the Brownstone single... I heard it through the grapevine or just some insightful tidbits we came across while doing our research or from distant recollections passed down that we wanted to mention. So Robin, what you done heard through the grapevine? I done heard that Montel Jordan and Sean Crawford wrote Nobody's Supposed to Be Here with Patti LaBelle in mind. They said she was the inspiration for the song and wrote it in a way that they could see her singing it. But Patti turned the song down. 
I read somewhere Patty actually regrets turning it down after it became a hit. She calls it the song that got away. At the time, she felt it just wasn't for her. And as we know, the song ended up with the very capable Deborah Cox. I love this song and Deborah's version so much. But yes, I can see Patty killing this too. It definitely has her dramatic theatrical flair. I can't quite see Patty LaBelle doing this song in particular, but it would have been nice to see Patty have her A Rose is Still a Rose moment. Because I feel like she had she had a little bit of a kick in the 90s a little bit with some, mm-hmm. of her, some of her previous singles. Yep. Matter of fact, maybe that should have been more of a trend. Uh, we, we talked about The Temptations, we talked about Aretha, yeah. but it would have been nice to see a few more people sprinkled into that mix. I totally agree. I love that assessment. <laughs> So this was our look back on 1998. Please visit rhythmandschooledpodcast.com for our archive of shows, notes, and references for your own independent schooling and get to know us. We fly. Our email is the411 at rhythmandschooledpodcast.com. If you have feedback and want to speak out on your favorite R&B artists of the 90s, we'll be sure to read and share on the show in the future. Well, we only have one more episode, so you better get it in if you want one. (laughs) Also follow the podcast on Instagram at rhythm underscore and underscore schooled. And be sure to listen to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and now on YouTube at Rhythm Schooled Podcast as well. And to hear curated mixtapes for each episode, find them exclusively on Spotify. Until next time. Peace.